Flying Bull Productions presents Laugh, Literature, and Film. It's a good stuff. Oh, yeah. It's the Laugh Podcast. It's our last show of the year. Mr. Two Frames. Oh, it's so sad. The year went by so quick. It's a pretty good show to end on, though, I think. Yeah. Pretty yeah. good movie to end on. Uh, this is our one of our most anticipated movies of 2015. Um, I'm your host, one of your hosts, the uh, L Train, Rich Lusk. Over there is Mr. Two Frames, Ryan Bull. Howdy. And the two of us went on a road trip to go to the Hateful Eight Roadshow. Yeah, we with, decided to do this for episode 109. And uh, went two and a half hours away, or maybe more. Went to Woodbridge, Virginia, one of the few, one of the 100 screens that was showing it at uh, starting, I guess, on last weekend. When mm-hmm. did they open up? January 20th? Uh, started on Christmas Day. Started on Christmas Day. And we saw it on January 28th. Uh, but we're ahead of the game in terms of its nationwide release. This movie has gotten a lot of buzz for its controversy. It's Quentin Tarantino. I've uh, been talking about this movie for probably, I don't know, two years. Close to two years. About that, our uh, fall preview was the Hateful Eight memorial list. Mm-hmm. This is the story of a number of bounty hunters, uh, among them John Hangman Ruth, played by Kurt Russell, and his fugitive prisoner is played by Jennifer Jason Lee, the only female, uh, the only main female of the in the movie of the eight. Uh, they encounter another bounty hunter along the way, Samuel L. Jackson and a man who claims to be a sheriff, played by Walter Goggins. They have to find shelter from a blizzard, and they, they hole up in uh, Minnie's Haberdasher, a stagecoach stopover located on a mountain pass. And there they meet four strangers, thus completing the eight. Got room for one more? They call him the hangman. When the handbill says dead or alive, the rest of us just shoot you in the back and up on top of perch somewhere and bring you in dead over a saddle. But when John Roof the hangman catches you, you hang. Get in, boys! This here is Daisy Domergoo. She's wanted dead or alive for murder. When that sun comes out, I'm taking this woman to hang. Is there anybody here committed to stopping me from doing that? Well, well, well. Looks like Minnie's haberdashery is about to get cozy for the next few days. Yes, it does. What was your take on The Hateful Eight, Mr. Two Frames? Uh, went in very excited to uh, watch this film pretty much i think for the both of us tarantino whenever he's going to come out with a film that's going to be our most eagerly anticipated film and if that's not the best film we've seen uh during the year it's a bit of a letdown for us i mean that is the unreasonable standard we have for tarantino yeah it's kind of sad I think we also hold the Coens up to that standard and christopher nolan uh we were both a little disappointed with the movie interstellar Maybe Paul Thomas Anderson is in that rarefied era yeah. as well. But we were disappointed with Inherent Vice. Yeah, we we were disappointed with Inherent Vice, and I, I do think that that's not a great movie. 
But Interstellar, I think, is a good movie. I think we had such lofty expectations that we were let down by the film. The Coen brothers met our expectations on Inside Lewin Davis. This movie, I'm not sure quite met our expectations, though it's still really good, and I wouldn't be surprised if it shows up on one of our top ten lists here in a couple weeks. Well, Interstellar made your top ten list last year. No? It's close. I think it made uh, Lasky's. It was also, uh, but it was an honorable mention. You were a lot higher on it than I was. Yeah. So I'm wondering, of those three movies that we've seen from our some of our favorite movie makers, Inherent Vice, Interstellar, and Hateful Eight, where does this one rank? Ooh, oh, it's, it's definitely the best of all of those. Mm-hmm. I like this film. There are a lot of things that I really enjoyed about it. I think that there's a lot of classic Tarantino-style moments in this film. When we had a three-hour car ride together coming back from the film, that gave us a lot of time to nitpick the film. Yeah. And... I think the only major criticism we're both going to have is Tarantino inserting himself into the film, which he almost has to have as a criticism of his films, because that is a constant through line of all of his films, that the film would be better if you got rid of the Tarantino part. So it almost wouldn't feel like a Tarantino film unless there was that little bit of excess that we both didn't care for. In other in other Tarantino films, it's not as oppressive though, and it doesn't stand out or stick out as much. I mean, Ooh. if it's an acting performance, that's one thing. Django's horrible. Pulp Fiction, his bit, it would have been so much better if he wasn't in there. Oh, I, I disagree. Uh, I, I kind of disagree with that. I, I I know it would have been better maybe with a different actor, but it's still. I mean, he's not a great actor. Actually, the Tarantino acting role was the insertion of Zoe Bell. She takes over. For him as an actor, but the thing that happens with Tarantino is sort of meta, and it and it's removed from the actual experience of the film, and like you said, it takes you out of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that's a that's a drawback. I mean, but overall, I like it. Um, it is a uh, single room murder mystery style uh, plot. Yeah, almost you like know. Ten Little Indians or. Yeah. What is it? 12 Lindy's? Tarantino said that he was inspired to do this. There were a lot of classic Western TV shows back in, you know, the 50s. Mm -hmm. Um, The Gunman, uh, Maverick, Big Valley, uh, Gunsmoke. And almost always they would have one of these closed room episodes. Mm -hmm. One of the things is it allows you to save a whole lot of money on sets. If you put everyone in the same location, you mm-hmm. uh, you see this in a lot of other shows. Uh, Game of Thrones is big for that. Mm-hmm. You know, they are trying to save the money for when they have a huge episode. I like that closed approach with the westerns. I also think it's kind of ironic that he shoots this movie using seventy millimeter lenses. Yeah, I was and it's ask super you about super that. wide, and yet he's on this closed set for most of the time. Well, so I enjoy all those elements. I thought. The cinematography, being in a single room, he kept it interesting, and he really does move the camera around really well. You touched on a couple of things. I want to get, I want to get back to the cinematography thing, but I also wanted to mention that in the roadshow production, uh, we were able to see an overture, and there was an intermission that wasn't a whole lot going on with the intermission. But the overture and the entire movie was scored by Ennio Maracone, mm-hmm. who. Uh, Film buffs would know his work from classic spaghetti westerns uh, for a few dollars more and Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. This is his first western that he scored in, I think, 40 years. The music that played at the beginning during the overture was 
to me, it sounded like a lot of uh, Hitchcock, Hitchcock soundtracks. And, th- and that's what it sort of uh, sort of brought to mind for me. So the mystery aspect of it played into that in terms of the scoring. And I, I thought the score was wonderful. It's a lot different than Tarantino's usual work, which is using contemporary sort of mixed genre approach to his music. But I liked having a single uh, person doing the score. He normally doesn't have a score with a lot of his films. That's something he's been right. going to more and more. Well, the fact that he was able to get this guy to do it was a big uh, get mm-hmm. for him. And I think it worked. I like the the way that the 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 interplay between the score and the visual style and the fact that it was shot on 70 millimeter film and those wide spanning, you know, spawn, huge spanned vistas of, uh, I think it was my Wyoming, right? Uh, yeah. the, the story was set in Wyoming. They filmed in Colorado. That's right. Telluride in Colorado. So, uh, yeah, beautiful, um, exterior scenery and, but you can interiors. Well, I was going to get back to that. You're that wide. You can stretch across the whole room. So in terms of aspect ratio and having that wide film and that uh, anamorphic lens that allows you to capture a lot of the edges, does that work when you're inside of a cabin, a cabin like this? Like when you're walled up inside of a cabin, I'm I'm just wondering. Oh, for me, I think it definitely works because it changes metaphorically in terms of tension because you're not, you're not really closed in there. It feels really wide open as you're watching it. And it's important in terms of blocking. Well, a lot of attention was paid to where certain characters are at a certain time. And you have to be consistent with that. But um, I don't know. I saw it was an odd choice as I was watching the movie. I think it's it's an odd choice. And Tarantino deliberately made this more difficult than he needed mm-hmm. it to be. When you have such a wide lens, you're going to show so much more of the background. So just making sure everything's in its right place from shot to shot, take to take. Mm -hmm. Being able to do something interesting when you have more frame to fill. If he had shot in a smaller aspect ratio than uh, 2.76, it would be a lot easier doing the blocking with the actors. Because you wouldn't have as much space to fill. And then also they shot on a refrigerated set that was 30 degrees. Yeah, they're trying you, to mimic the How cold it was. They had. And you're constantly seeing the actor's breath come out. Mm-hmm. And just, you're going to wear out a crew shooting in that type of environment. The actors too. Oh yeah, you can't spend a whole lot of time going, mm, do I want the camera here? Do I want it over there? You have to know stuff. And everyone has to feel like you're constantly making progress or else they're going to get very upset working on a set like that. Especially when they're covered with a lot of liquid. There's oh. a lot of liquid coverage of actors in this. Yeah, very syrupy. Well, there's even stew. <laughs> yeah. Uh, coffee flying around. Um, there's they're, they're, it, it had to have been physically taxing. I heard that when um, actors died, their characters died, they continued on set. If they were in the cabin at the time that they were shot, they stayed on set just as a corpse for the rest of the shoot. Oh, wow. Yeah. They didn't bring in dummies. Nope. The actors chose to do that. They had that much respect for the craft and for Tarantino. I don't know if he even asked them to do that, but they they all wanted to do it. So when a certain character dies early on, uh, well, I wouldn't say early on. That's another thing that we can talk about. Um in terms of pacing, because mm-hmm. the movie sort of plods along a little bit. 
It's three hours and I think the version we saw was three hours and seven minutes long. Something like that, yeah. It was a little bit longer than the the stage or the uh, wide release that's going out, but the a three three hour movie that's a pretty long time. And if it, if you say it's a Tarantino movie and it takes almost an hour and a half before a, I think before a gun gets shot. <laughs> Mm-hmm. then that sort of plays against the conventions of what you're thinking of with a Tarantino movie. So I, I'm just... Yeah, there's a lot of that ramping up of tension. And after I saw the movie, I think I told you I saw it as a procedural, almost like a cop procedural, that this is you know the Western. There's a lot of show me your hands, put your gun down over there, keep your hands on the table where I can see him, all those things so that you understand that there's that uh, danger that is constantly around. None of these men and women trust each other. No one's really who they say they are. So you have to constantly be ready for something bad to happen. And in a lot of other Westerns, the idea is if you're the best gunfighter, your reactions are so good, you're going to be able to draw your gun before the bad guy can, and, and he knows it, so he's not going to try anything. This is more realistic. You're not going to to you know, just rely on your um, reaction time to save you. You're always going to want to put yourself in the most advantageous position. And even later on, when another character is deliberately trying to get someone to shoot him, he sets it up by placing the gun on the character's left side, even though the character is right-handed, so that it's going to take him more time to reach across his body, reach down, get the gun, and bring it up and point. Right. So that when he does have to outdraw this guy, he... He's got his gun right on his hip. The other guy's just going to have to go so much further to get it. So I like all that. It it makes it more realistic. It makes it a little grittier. Can it be a bit of a slog at times? Sure, but I do think we get a payoff towards the end of the film for all that. But that also begs the question about the whole conceit of the film. And my, I guess my question to you is, if the, if the poster says dead or alive, mm-hmm. what sense does it make to bring the one the person in alive? Because you're, you're if you're a bounty hunter, mm-hmm. and you're and you're hunting some bounty, and that and that bounty at some point wants to do you harm, aren't you just kind of better off shooting it, killing it, dragging it in? Agreed. So, but I, I'm not I, sure that these the are the best bounty up, hunters though. in the world. Oh, uh, I think okay. so. If they're such good bounty hunters, <laughs> there are many bounties that they have to be made aware of oh, yeah. during the right. course of the film. And I realize some of that's exposition. you got to right. find a way to tell the audience what these other bounties are. But the reaction of these bounty hunters, who's that? Never heard of them before. How much is their bounty? Ooh, that's a lot. Well, and you're you, thinking, well, shouldn't you know that? Did you know this movie was originally envisioned as a sequel to Django Unchained? This, uh, mm-hmm. Originally, he planned it out as a... Uh, furthering of that story and uh, Tarantino thought putting Django in there as the Marquise uh, is a general Marquise or is he a colonel major Marquise Ma- warden right um, putting him there would have given the audience a moral center mm-hmm. and he said the problem with the script is this movie the hateful eight does not need someone that's not hateful Someone mm-hmm. that you want to cheer for. Yeah, there is no one to cheer for. Though this movie does connect to Inglorious Bastards. Well, uh, apparently they're all in a combined universe. All of Tarantino's movies supposedly are taking place in the same universe. Well, Timothy Roth's character is the great-great-grandfather of Michael Fassbender's Lieutenant Archie Hickox. Uh-huh. Or Hickox. 
okay. from Inglorious Bastards. And of course, you have the red apple cigarettes, you know, that, yeah, it makes it all the same universe. But a lot of these characters are somewhat related to each other. And Tarantino has said, you know, he sees them being the ancestors of other characters. Well, I think he realized while he was watching or while he was writing out the piece that there was something going on that wouldn't allow for a character like Django just Mm -hmm. to reappear. He says uh, he needed to go. So then you come up with these other eight characters. Now, as I was watching the film, I was counting the characters. There are actually nine. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what your sort of take on that is, because I have an answer to that, I suppose. I do, too. What is yours? That the stagecoach driver is not one of the Hateful Eight. And why is that? O.B. Jackson. He never really does much in the film. He's not that hateful. Yeah, I mean, he, he's a minor character. I, w- I wouldn't make him part of the Hateful Eight. Right. If you were going to have a superhero squad of yeah. uh, major villains to go fight, you wouldn't say, hey, I want this guy. I like James Parks. He does a good job in the role, right. but... He's a good guy. Th- yeah, there's just not a... I don't, I don't know if he's a good guy. He just... He has a job. I think he's a good guy. Uh, neutral at best. He does nothing good. He doesn't do anything bad. Hey, he does a pretty good job getting these people to Minnie's haberdashery in the middle of a that's blizzard. His, that's his job. He's been paid. All right. He's good at his job. Charlie's good at his job. Would you say he's the... Yeah, I was wondering... That, that's kind of what I came up with as I was watching it. Um, I, I was wondering if maybe at some point, though, it would have been the Jennifer Jason Lee character. Like, are we supposed to ever feel sorry for her? And, th- and that's the that's problem that I have with the film is there's no real audience surrogate. I'm not sure that there has to be in all films, but there usually is. And there's no one that we personally can identify with unless you have your own peccadillos and private leanings or personal leanings. It could be subjective, I suppose. Uh, and you can make a subjective choice. But I don't think the narration is set up or the story is set up in such a way so that you have a personal attachment to any one character. No, I don't think there's any character we're supposed to have personal attachment to. At times, Jennifer Jason Lee is supposed to uh, be a foil for the audience's laughter. She often gets hit in the face or stuff gets thrown on her. And I'll admit to laughing at a couple of those moments, even though that is a little malicious towards women. And I can understand how the feminists would get mad at that. And I think Tarantino is pointing out that we really shouldn't be laughing here because he has Jennifer Jason Lee start to laugh in a lot of these scenes and she almost seems to enjoy the pain being inflicted upon her. And it kind of think- turns you a little bit. You're like, oh, why is she enjoying this? And, and that makes you question, well, why am I enjoying this? So you think it's by design. You don't think he just wanted to have an excuse to throw up, to smash a woman up? No, I think so Jennifer you- Jason Lee's reaction to that is a very subtle feminist critique of violence against women. (laughs) Okay. So Quentin Tarantino is a feminist director. So charges of misogyny are misplaced. Yeah. And I'm waiting to hear all the charges of misogyny. Oh, they're, they're out there, man. There's a lot of them. They're, they're coming and they're coming like a herd of wild horses down the hills. of Colorado. I, I think he's purposely, he gives us the violence. He gives us a chance to laugh at it, to belittle the moment. And then when you see Jennifer Jason Lee's reaction, you just go, ooh, uh, she's not supposed to be like doing that. Well, And then, well, why should I? I think that's the question you constantly ask yourself. Mm, I don't know. I, I think it might be Quentin Tarantino sort of acting out his, uh, his sense of humor 
That's fine. And his, the the way that he approaches violence towards women is complicated, but he seems to me like the kind of guy who says, I, I can't be a misogynist. Some of my best friends are women. <laughs> my wife's a woman. I don't, be, I, I don't know. I, I just think it's a, it's a little too easy for him to get away from those charges of misogyny by... Okay, and a lot of brutality does happen to this woman. Right. But I could argue some of the deaths that the men endure are worse in some of the things that happen to them in this film. If you look at the escalation of violence directed against her, and it works visually as well by the amount of fluid mm-hmm. that appears on her over the through the course of the movie. She's, she undergoes this transformation and becomes something um, hellish and horrifying. Now, was she always that to begin with? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It's like Tarantino has out Chris Rock, Chris Rock with his uh, adherence to the use of the N word. And he, I mean, if you talk about Quentin Tarantino, the two things that you're going to, the three things you'll talk about are N word, violence, uh, misogyny. And then some of those charges kind of, I mean, they stick in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, gratuitous violence, that's his foray. I mean, that's his forte. And uh, I don't know. We saw the film with, I I don't remember seeing any women. You guys told me that there were some women there. That's not his audience. His audience isn't aren't feminists. I don't think his audiences are men. Yeah, and we also uh, saw a that certain age with an audience of adults who had taken off the day from work to see an eleven o'clock <laughs> right. screening of a three hour movie. Yeah, they weren't all teachers. Yeah, so we were in there with an audience that all loves Tarantino. I mean, there were people getting goosebumps around us when the overture started playing. It was like, dang, I'm back at the Star Wars screening. I think some people get that excited for Tarantino. Yeah, and are those people all misogynists? No, I don't think so. Are they all racist? No, I don't think so. I'm pretty sure I'm not any of those things. But I enjoy Tarantino movies. It's sort of a release. But you can't argue with the fact that he's that this woman gets brutalized. No, but she's also a horrible individual. Um, and even the stuff with race, Samuel L. Jackson's character, he's a horrible person, but he's also had horrible things that have been done to him. And a lot of the talk and discussion about the Civil War is interesting because no one who fought in that Civil War apparently seems to be a good person. They all did horrible things at some point to try and win. Uh, the person that we saw the movie with, uh, we called him the koala on one of our shows. He came on as a co-host. For one thing, uh, one show, I can't remember which one, but he said that the the only positive theme he got out of the movie, or the most positive theme that he got out of the movie was the reconciliation of North and South, <laughs> which it's a good take because there isn't a whole lot good <laughs> that goes on with this film thematically. I mean, there's not a whole lot of positive theme uh, that you can draw out of it. Jennifer Jason Lee talking about whether or not she's she's, getting some awards nomination buzz. I think she gave the best acting performance in this film. She says that uh, Tarantino is the most female-centric director around. He writes parts for women that are the best parts there to be had. He's not sexist. He doesn't write her as some delicate victim flower. She's a killer. She's gutsy. And her whole identity... uh, Sorry, her whole identity is, yeah, give me what you got. It doesn't mean anything to me. Hit me again. I don't give a expletive expletive, you know? 
She's not going to show any vulnerability, and that's a tactic she's using, and it tells you a lot about her. She said that in her Q&A with Uproxx. And uh, so she's of the mind that he's not a misogynist, like you. Yeah. And I guess a positive theme in this movie might be female empowerment. I, I don't know. Yeah, I just... Uh... I think Tarantino does write good characters. They feel very fleshed out in all of his films. He gives them all chances to shine. Great dialogue. Uh, Any of these characters you'd want to see more of? Mm, no, not really. You hated them all. No, I mean, hated they were all fine. I thought they worked in this universe. I don't need to see a prequel. When you said the thing about Django originally was going to be in this, I would like to see a follow-up Django film. I'd like to see more of Jamie Foxx. Mm-hmm. But... Um, no, for this, no. There are other Tarantino characters I'd rather see him. Apparently, I'd like to see the bastards go fight in the Korean War. Well, there aren't many bastards left. All right, whoever's left. <laughs> I think this is only bastard. If you were to rank this among Tarantino movies, oh. uh, there's eight of them, would it be in the top five? Ugh, I, I don't know. I used to, or I, don't, I didn't used to, I still do this. I give you crud when you have 20 films or 20 whatever in your top 10 list. It's flexible. It's a flexible list. Yeah, I mean, to me, my favorite Tarantino film is always going to be the last one I watched of his. Oh, but that's you're not making the case for that, Barry. You're not making a strong case for that, unless you watched Django last night. No, no. I still like this film a lot, and I've been thinking about it and been thinking about the moments in this film. I, I think that it's going to improve upon subsequent viewings. I'm thinking about going and watching it when it comes out in theaters nationwide and seeing, you know, a digital projection of it without the overture and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are some alternate takes to some scenes. Mm -hmm. And I am the type of person who can get excited about four new minutes of content in a three hour film. I like it. It's fifth or sixth best though, of all the Tarantino films. If I have to be honest, that's where I put it too. I mean, but that still means it, it it's still a good, a yeah. good movie. <laughs> well, and that's the whole thing. This is so unfair. This is like <sighs> Sophie's Choice. Yeah, it's Sophie's Choice. It's like saying, "What's the greatest football team ever?" And like, what well, do you have at number six? Oh, yeah, those guys suck. No, right. they're still an amazing football team. I think that the the movies. But if this is lesser tier Tarantino, you can make an argument as to why. I can make an argument as to why. There are, there are so many things that the other ones have that this one doesn't have. The main, most annoying one is his insertion of himself. And I think if there's any one character that we're supposed to identify with, I think Tarantino wants us, wants it to be Tarantino. It wants it to be the director. We got a, um, a pamphlet that came with the roadshow. And I read in there that he said uh, his insertion of himself as a narrator midway through the film is a callback to the uh to the to the live read that they had for his script mm. that came out in 2014. He said he wanted moviegoers to have that same sort of experience. And I think every little touch in this movie which are good. I mean, like I said, even the violence for me is fine. Um those small things that are Tarantino are in there because they're Tarantino and if you love Tarantino, I think this is a great movie for you. He's not going to get any fence sitters to fall over to his side and i don't think he cares but but for me it's a it's a very good movie i'm interested to see a fan cut of this film too because you could cut around that whole narrator aspect and some of the information the narrator gives us Mm -hmm. and i think it makes for a stronger film 
if you don't have the narrator spelling out certain things for us. I think that there's enough in the performance and the dialogue of various characters that you could figure out what's going on. We talked about Major Marquise Warren as a character substitution for Django, Mm -hmm. but there were some acting substitutions that were made because of scheduling and things of that nature. I'm wondering if you think the movie would have been improved with a couple of them I want to talk about. The first one is uh, Hangman, John Ruth, um, played by Kurt Russell in the film. Apparently this was written with Christoph Waltz in mind. Would that movie, would that have made a difference? It would have made a difference. Would it have been an improvement? I don't know if it may be an improvement. To me, Christoph Waltzen, he just seems like a smaller actor Mm -hmm. than uh, Kurt Russell. And to me, you want this big brute of a bounty hunter. Right. Christoph Waltz, I I just, I don't see that working as well. And then, how would they have Tim Roth in there? Right, that that seemed to me more like the Christoph Waltz role. Yeah, at first I thought that is Christoph Waltz. It might have made a, he might have been better in that role than uh, Tim Roth was. Tim Roth was a letdown for me in this movie. But he's another Tarantino regular, so he does yeah. a serviceable job. I think that Christoph Waltz would have added a little bit more Would nuance. you have kept Kurt Russell in this? Or would you have recast? Uh, with Christoph Waltz? Probably not. Uh, like like you say, there's Bragadocia there. And plus, I'd just seen him in, uh, well, and not just, but we saw him in... Um, Bone Tomahawk? And he was excellent in that. Did that hurt that you'd already seen him playing such a similar character and knocking it out of the park in Bone Tomahawk? No, because the the character the characters are just they're not similar. I don't think they are very similar at all. I think that Ruth is the Hangman. Ruth is um, more like John Wayne, just sort of braggadocious and tries to be in control, but he tries to control through violence. Whereas Bone Tomahawk Sheriff, he is more in control through his stature and through his bearing. Maybe Ruth is in control through his reputation, but he's also, I mean, he flies off the handle. He's not in, he's not in control of himself as much as the character in Bone Tomahawk. That's fair. Another character that uh, had an acting choice that changed was Daisy Domergue. Apparently they had in mind, I think Tarantino said, go out and get me the best actress named Jennifer. And they tried for Jennifer Lawrence, and they couldn't get it. He goes, all right, well, then give me the second best actor named Jennifer. And they wound up with Jennifer Jason Lee. Would the movie have been better with Jennifer Lawrence? No. Over Jennifer Jason Lee. Jennifer Lawrence is too young. I think you want someone a little older who has a little more gravitas. At the table reads, they had... Um, Amber Tamlin. Yeah, who was on House for one season. Mm-hmm. She was the young uh, doctor. Yeah. But they wanted someone like you said, a little bit older. Yeah. And then they went with uh, Jennifer Jason Lee over Jennifer Lawrence. I think they made the right choice there. I think they made the right choice with Kurt Russell over Christoph Waltz as well. I yeah. think the acting choices were pretty spot on. Trisha Helfer from Battlestar Galactica, she really wanted the role. Mm-hmm. And again, it's sorry, you're too young. And she's in her mid-30s, late-30s. She's an interesting actress. Mm-hmm. Um, but then... She's also much taller. Like, Jennifer Jason Lee's 5'3", maybe. Mm-hmm. She, she seems pretty tiny and vulnerable, but she's tough as nails in this film. So I, I like that. Mm-hmm. I don't think you would have gotten that with a Jennifer Lawrence right. performance Too or heroic. Trisha Helfer. Yeah, I don't think they can be minimized as well. Um, 
you'd almost need to like go like a Natalie Portman or something. Right. Direction. Some, someone more live. Mm-hmm. Smaller. Kira uh, Knightley would be interesting. But then I just like Kira Knightley and pretty much anything she does. Okay. She's pretty good. Um, we almost have to go into spoilers, though, for the other cast change. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to do that. Because I have spoilers. another question in spoilers I want to ask right. you in particular if you were an actor. All right. What choices you would make. So, all right, spoil this, man. The man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. All right, so the other casting uh, change that they had to make, Vigo Mortensen was originally supposed to play Jody Domergue. Instead, that goes to Channing Tatum when uh, Vigo Mortensen's schedule wouldn't work out. Okay. Who would you prefer in that Vigo role? Vigo Mortensen. Yeah. Yeah, Channing Tatum was the low spot for me. He, he might not have been the worst actor in the whole movie because Zoe Bell was horrible, but she's not a real actor either. So, But Tatum isn't a bad actor. I I'm feel not sure like I like the role. I think he's miscast, and I've read people saying that Tarantino was trying to do uh, Once Upon a Time in the West where Henry Fonda is shown to be the villain. You know, this guy who's always been the good guy, always clean-cut all-American boy, Mm -hmm. is now the horrible villain. And he was trying to do that with Channing Tatum, and it just Channing Tatum hasn't really Channing Tatum hasn't really achieved that level of prominent. Yeah, yeah, even that, like... uh, it amounts to more stunt casting than it does to sort of playing against type. Yeah. I think. Well, then his type isn't clearly established yet. He's like magic Mike and 22 jump street. That doesn't really make him the, yeah, he still feels like he's in his twenties, but he's leading this gang around that's yeah. all in their forties and fifties. These grizzled veterans, his sisters in her forties. I mean, right. just, it, it doesn't work. It, it doesn't feel like he could be the leader of this group. If right. Vigo Mortensen was there, sure, I buy that. Yeah, but you, if if his motivation was to find someone that people that appeal to uh, an audience because of certain characteristics, then Vigo Mortensen really wouldn't doesn't match up with Channing Tatum. I'm trying to think of who an equivalent would be. Even Tom Hanks, I don't think, works because we've already seen him in Road to Perdition. Plus, he's way too old. Too old. Brad Pitt, I feel, has played, hasn't always played the super clean-cut guy. Yeah, Would be a surprise. I really don't know. I can't think of anyone that you can cast off the off the boat. I mean, <laughs> I know who I want to be underneath that stage, underneath that floor, to pop up randomly uh-huh. in a Tarantino movie. John Goodman. <laughs> but I want John Goodman and everything. I mean, that that's the problem. Eventually, you just get into Everything's who are people I want to see in Good, these films. with Goodman. Yeah, yeah. I, I was trying to think of someone um, uh, like uh, who was the guy in the Notebook? Ryan Gosling. Yeah, yeah, that could work. Ryan Gosling might have a little bit more because the, the times that he's played sort of sketchy, evil characters have been in films that nobody's seen. Mm-hmm. So he might have. More of a, I don't know, persona of someone that you identify with in a positive way. Yeah. And I mean, and while I like Tarantino casting a lot of the same people, at times, though, I kind of wish he'd go in a different direction. Samuel L. Jackson does a fine impression of Samuel L. Jackson in this film. Uh-huh. But if you could have gotten Idris Elba, would uh-huh. that have been better? I don't know. Because the, the dialogue 
and the and the actor are so tied closely together you kind of it has to hear, be Sam almost you almost hear that voice when you re- if you were to read the script i think that you would immediately start hearing Samuel L Jackson so i don't know if it has to be that way like to me well he's not doing an accent Idris Elba would have to do an accent yeah but i mean other major black actors Chiwetel have done well. it's another well, brit yeah that's, David O'Elia? I don't know. I mean, I thought Jamie Foxx was wonderful as Django, and I never felt like, oh, that should be Samuel L. there. You know, if only Samuel L. Jackson was 30 years younger. Right, but Sam, when Samuel Jackson shows up in Django, he fits that role, too. He's not playing a part. I yeah, know. I didn't feel like he was playing Sam Jackson in that okay. role, and I was happy to see that. This, I'm like, this feels a little just tired. I've, I've seen this before. And All right. It's kind of a shame because I think Samuel L. Jackson has more range. He's starting to become a parody of himself. If you wind up in a Quentin Tarantino movie, though, you're probably going to wind up dead. And it occurred to me while I was watching this, the person that I identified with most is the guy that walks in on this massacre at the end. (laughs) And what he has to deal with when he sees this. Because at the end, there are, are there, well, there's nine dead bodies plus, I mean, they're, 12 are there 12 or 13 corpses some uh, of them are in the well yeah, yeah i think yeah i think there's like 15 and then did you notice that samuel L. jackson and walter goggins characters are the last two people to die in this film and they were the last two people to die in django unchained no yeah. i didn't know that what i remember about django unchained are the parts leading up to the ridiculous ending like the ridiculous ending after he rescues or I guess he comes back from being sort of hogtied and mm-hmm. having his genitals mutilated or, or threatened. Threatened. Yeah, I think that that's where I kind of I cut off from there, metaphorically speaking. The high point of the movie is the scene with Christoph Waltz and Leonardo DiCaprio for me, and then after that, it's just sort of downhill. Oh, I still enjoyed it. That's I, why I Django doesn't. Thing. Django is not in my top. No, oh, I guess it's third. But I'm not even sure about that. Well, I was thinking of my top Tarantino movies. It's sort of a you know, push between Django and Pulp Fiction. I'm not sure that Pulp Fiction, or Django's better than Pulp Fiction. I don't know. I have a soft spot for those. Uh, Kill Bill. I, I still want Those are down at the bottom for me. I, I still want to see the proper edit of Kill Bill. It's only been aired a couple times. Mm-hmm. Generally, Tarantino's holding the screen, where it's both the films combined, mm-hmm. and they cut out... Um, the the end of the first film when it goes does she know her child's alive you know, oh. that was the teaser at the end of the yeah, first right. film so instead you find out at the very end of the film when uma thurman finds out that sh- her daughter is alive oh, so okay. after you've that gone on this the whole movie oh definitely hmm. i feel that there may have been some changes to this movie that were sort of brought on by the by the production by the studio yeah maybe maybe um there's some notes in there like it's possible that those uh, the narration is a note from somebody. Say, uh, hey, man, we don't really understand what's going on here. Maybe. Why don't you figure out a way to, to fix this? The movie only apparently cost about $50 million to do. Mm-hmm. To outfit all 100 theaters was another 8 to $10 million. Yeah. I, so that's they've really, recouped that. And if nothing else, it's also great advertising because even people who don't go and watch the road show we'll still go and watch the film when it releases in theaters this Friday. Right. I wonder how much though. I wonder, I mean, there's nothing else coming out this week. We don't even have a, we laugh this week. So it's, yeah, we it's hitting it at a prime, 
it's hitting it. I mean, it's in a prime spot. I think it'll make its money back. It'll oh, it'll do make well. seventy million over time. And I think will it make two hundred million? I don't know. I don't think Tarantino films generally do that much. Seeing it in a seventy millimeter projection on film and going on that road trip was one of the highlights of the year for the Laugh Podcast. I think. I enjoy it. We're traveling now. Yeah, I I really like the experience of the movie. Maybe a little bit more so than the movie, but I can I can recommend it. I can say, hey man. Yeah, this is one of the top films of the year. Maybe not top ten. Maybe I still have a couple more movies to see. Yeah, no, I, I would definitely recommend it to people. I mean, you know what you're getting with Tarantino. What other movies are out there that you still need to see that might hit your top ten? Ooh, other ones. Uh, definitely need to see the Revenant. Uh, Legends. I still need to see. I've heard good things about Carol. I'm wondering if the acting performances in that will be enough to put it over the top. Because mm-hmm. I gotta say, Brooklyn's pretty high on my list. Um. What's the one about the housing crisis? Not the big the, short. The big short. Yeah, I need to see the big short. Uh, I, I got some bad information about that. Uh, 99 Homes. I've heard some good That's things good about one. that. So I would say those are probably the ones I still need to try and check out before we do our top 10. What about for you? Uh, I still haven't seen Spotlight yet or Carol. Uh, I haven't seen Joy. That's a movie that's out there that, uh, I mean, the it's David aren't big on. Really? 57% around Tomatoes. Hmm. Wow. Uh, haven't seen Bridge of Spies yet. I oh, expect yeah. that that might get a nomination. Other than that, I, I, I've seen a lot of movies this year. I'm looking forward to our end of the year roundup top 10. It's going to be hard whittling it down. Mm, I'm pretty close now. I'm pretty close. I just need to see The Revenant and then some of those other movies that we talked about. But I, I'm, I'm pretty sure, like on our Laffy Award show, I was hesitant to have award, given out the award in, uh, Achievement Award for Facial Hair, because I feel that there's probably going to be some pretty good facial hair in The Revenant. I haven't seen any of the trailers. I haven't really seen any of the... I saw one scene, or one still image of a scene that's sort of controversial, but that's going to be our next show, right? The Revenant? Uh, I think we got to do something in between that. Revenant's not going to be out until the 8th. Oh, January 8th? All right, so maybe one of those other movies we just talked about. Yeah, we'll figure out something. So there will be something coming up next week. (laughs) There will there will be a wee laugh I think and uh, it's going to be the new year our first episodes of 2016 so we just put 2015 in the bag 109 episodes awesome good year sir good pod good pod (laughs) that's a good pod alright so for the L train or actually for Mr. Two Frames over there I'm the L train (laughs) Box set bonum, everybody. There be dragons. <laughs>